Today, we're halfway through our sermon series on the life of Jacob. The portrait drawn in Scripture of Jacob is the fullest, richest, most complex portrayal of a human in the book of Genesis. He gets more than half the book. He's born in chapter 25. He dies in chapter 49. We learn not only his deeds and his speeches, but with more, more than any other person in the book of Genesis, we learn about his inner life, his dreams, his thoughts, his feelings. And what do we see when we look at Jacob's life? Well, we see a lot of junk. A lot of flaws. Here is someone who really struggles with pride and greed and lust. But more than anything, here is someone who is uncommonly clever and cunning. He's the biblical counterpart to Odysseus. Like Odysseus, Jacob lives by his wits. He's the most rational and resourceful person in Genesis. He is so self-reliant that he's self-absorbed. More than anything or anyone else, Jacob trusts himself. From the moment he enters the world, hand on his brother's heel, Jacob is a conniver. He makes up for his lack of physical strength or his lack of position with his wits. And where does this get Jacob? Well, it gets him a lot of success. He pulls it off. If he wants it, he figures out a way and he gets it. It also gets him a lot of broken relationships. You see, it's precisely his enormous talents and self-reliance. It's this that leads him to wound the people closest to him. His father. His twin brother. Later on, his wives. And furthermore, because of his chronic self-reliance, he quickly and easily forgets God. He doesn't need God. Because he can pull it off on his own. He doesn't have to pray before a test. He's never made a B. He's always made A's. He doesn't have to ask God for help because he moves in the strength of his enormous talents and abilities. And when it comes to successes, achievements, victories, Jacob is a winner. But when it comes to relationships, he's a failure. An utter failure. He too easily fools others, so he thinks of others as fools. He's the guy who's constantly commenting on the stupidity of the culture around him. Of the people in his community. He's so successful in getting his own way that he doesn't need God. He's so successful in fooling others that he thinks of others as fools. And so when we look at Jacob, we are looking at a very complex person, a capable person, a tremendously gifted person, but a deeply flawed person. A man who really struggles to love others and to trust God. And this is a problem. It's a problem not just because it's tough on Jacob, but Jacob is one of the three patriarchs. One of the three people God has chosen to be the founders of the nation through whom God will solve the problem of evil. 
We've said this a lot, right? The story of the Bible is the story of God dealing with evil. And the tiny hinge that the entire Bible turns on is when God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, through you, I'm going to sort this whole thing out. And the way I'm going to sort it out is through you, I'm going to grow a nation who shows the world the ways of God. And so here you have one of the founders who has no interest in the ways of God. Who doesn't live the ways of God. Who doesn't walk in God's ways. So there's a problem. God has chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to found a nation that will carry his way as a light into all the world. So what does God do? Well, when we turn to Genesis chapter 29, we enter the second half of Jacob's life. Now, you remember we walked through Isaac's life. Isaac's, the first half of his life was amazing. He was a mountain of faith, a giant, a hero of the faith. But the second half of his life, he goes from hero to zero. The second half of his life is an utter failure. Jacob starts out his life as a failure. How will he end? What will become of this man? Genesis 29, here we have Jacob, the chronically self-reliant, the preeminently self-sufficient. And here we see that God begins to test the limits of his cleverness. God begins to help him see the limitation of self-reliance. Why? Because God loves Jacob. And he's not going to leave him with his fatal flaws. God wants Jacob to learn how to trust God. And love people. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you're not in the habit of that and you worship with us, please do. If for no other reason, it's good to learn to read the Bible. To learn how to read it. To find your way through it. It's the first book of the Bible. The part that Donna read to us a little earlier. Genesis chapter 29. Verses 15 to 30. Let's see four ways... That God begins his work of changing Jacob. Four ways that God becomes the primary teacher in Jacob's life. The ways God is forming Jacob. Two are negative and two are positive. The first way that we see God forming Jacob so that he can become a righteous man, a holy man, a loving man, a trusting man... Is that God rebukes him. God rebukes him. When Jacob wakes up after his drunken wedding night. He looks in the bed beside him. And who does he see? Not the woman he was wanting to marry. Or thought he would marry. Not Rachel but Leah. So he stumbles in his hangover from his tent. He finds Laban. He said, look at verse 25. What have you done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What a jerk. He's feigning moral outrage, right? He's throwing it back on Jacob. He's acting as if Jacob broke the rules. But if if Laban was really an upright man, he would have told him this at the beginning. Back when he entered into the agreement with him, right? He would have tipped his hand. He would have said, no, 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 no. We don't do it that way. 
Jacob, Laban is a jerk. He's not honest. And like most people like this, he throws it back on you. So discombobulating, right? You, you've been done wrong. You confront somebody and then they throw it on you and you leave thinking, no, wait a minute. How did that happen, right? <laughs> Jacob, the deceiver, has met his match. He's met the arch deceiver. Where does he think his mother learned deception from? But there's something else going on here. It's, it's what Laban, it's the words he uses. Three words, right? Um, it's there right at the beginning of verse 26. Five words. It is not so done. Your Bible might translate it differently. It's a little phrase. But it's really interesting. Hold your finger there where you are in Genesis. And jump over to chapter 34, verse 7. Genesis 34, verse 7. One of the things you need to learn when you're reading the book of Genesis is that the, God communicates his approval and disapproval, his will, his ways indirectly. It's kind of the opposite of Christian movies. It's not heavy-handed. It's artful. See, God can use events to communicate his will. Look look what it says in Genesis 34, verse 7. What's happened is that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, has just been raped. The sons of Jacob, his, his sons, find out. They come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had... What had happened, this thing that had been done, this outrageous thing in Israel by lying, by this, this person lying with their sister. Look what it says. For such a thing is not done. It's the exact same phrase. Now go back to Genesis chapter 20. Look at verse 9. Genesis 20 verse 9. Here Abraham has just pimped out his wife Sarah to Abimelech. Remember the story? We did this um, a year ago. Abraham, was, his, his wife was so beautiful, he was afraid when they went into this, this country. He was afraid that the king would kill him so he could have his wife. And so he said, oh, she's not my wife. <laughs> um, and look what happens when the king um, finds out that, that, that Abraham has lied. And then the king took his wife and thought that he could have her for his own wife. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that are not done. It's the same phrase. The only other time I know of this phrase being used in Scripture, jump over to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Look down at verse 12. David's children, boy and girl, Abnon, rapes his sister, Tamar. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12, she says to her brother, right before he rapes her, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done. It's the only other time I know the phrase used. See, here's what I think is going on. I think Laban is being a jerk. He's abusing and cheating and betraying Jacob. And yet, out of his mouth comes God's rebuke 
to Jacob for what Jacob did to his father. What you do in life, Jacob, ranks up there with this stuff. The way you live your life, the way you go around cheating. God is speaking to Jacob through Laban. God is naming Jacob's sin. After all, isn't this trickiness? Isn't this deceit? Isn't this grabbing of the birthright? Isn't this exactly what Jacob did to his father and to his brother? Through Laban, God is saying to Jacob, you have a deceitful character. God is naming his sin. He's rebuking Jacob. One of the great heroes of the Bible is David. One day David goes up on his roof and he looks across and he sees a woman taking a bath. And she's the wife of one of his closest friends. And his heart burns with lust. His friend is not home, so he invites her over and they have an adulterous affair. He gets away with it. Until one day his other friend Nathan comes to David and rebukes him. Names his sin. Says to David, you are a sinner. What you did is wrong. Rebuke is a key way God works in our life. It's one of the ways God forms us. Parents, you need to learn this. You need to rebuke your children. You need to name their sin for what it is. Parents of teenage daughters, when your daughter can't stop looking in the mirror, it's vanity. Name it. This is one of the ways God works in our life. It's by someone else speaking God's word to us. And through that, it is God speaking to us. Parents, we have to be willing to name the sins of our children to our children. When a child is being greedy, that's greed. When a child is being prideful, that's pride. We have to nip it in the bud. We have to go for it. But not just parents with children. Look at Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool in his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. Don't answer a fool. Lest you become like him, verse 4, verse 5, answer a fool, lest they're wise in their own eyes. See, the Bible is not simplistic. Proverbs didn't put those two Proverbs together and forget that it was contradicting itself. No, it's making a larger statement. It's saying there's a time to rebuke and a time not to rebuke. And it takes wisdom to know the difference. It takes courage to rebuke when we should. And it takes self-discipline not to rebuke. When we shouldn't. And how do you know the difference? Well, there's no rule for that. It's just wise discernment. But here's my question for you. Are any of you in a relationship with a friend? And you should rebuke your friend. But you're not doing it. Because you're a coward. Or have you rebuked a friend that you shouldn't have rebuked? Because you're a jerk. You see, it can go either way, right? Some of us are holding back out of wisdom and self-discipline. And some of us are holding back out of cowardliness. And it matters. 
Because rebuke is one of the ways God works in this world. Naming sin. Are you in a situation right now where you have a friend that is sinning? I'm not talking about messing up. I'm talking about grabbing a hold of a sin and embracing it and demanding that you affirm it or at least leave it alone. Is your rebuke one of the ways that God wants to work in that friend's life? Look, if the only reason you're not rebuking them is because you don't want to lose the friendship, shame on you. That's not wisdom. That's idolatry. That's like a parent saying, I'm not going to discipline my kid because I want him to like me. You know what that makes? But some of you, it's the opposite issue, isn't it? Shut your mouth, right? Some of you, some of us. You know, when it comes to fight or flight, I fight. I've got to learn to close my mouth more. Some of you, when it comes to fight or flight, you flee. Be careful. God might be trying to use you to work in someone's life. Be careful. Okay, so the first way we see God at work in Jacob's life is that God rebukes him through the words of an enemy who doesn't even know that he's speaking on behalf of God. God does not accept his sin. He names it. The next thing we see is that God doesn't stop at rebuking Jacob. He punishes Jacob. And he does this by letting Jacob get a taste of his own medicine. It's ironic, isn't it? Jacob, the sharp-eyed, has been tricked in the dark by his uncle regarding sisters, just as he had previously deceived his dim-sighted father regarding two brothers. In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac, Jacob's father, who was blind, so he lived in darkness, he couldn't see, Jacob exploits this darkness by sneaking into a tent and passing himself off as a sibling. This is called... Ironic justice. Two brothers exchanged by a trick in front of a person who can't see. Then in chapter 29, Jacob finds himself on the receiving end. Alcohol, darkness, and the wedding veil. Through all of these, Jacob has rendered the blind man. And two siblings are switched. And he's deceived. In fact, look at chapter, at verse 25. Genesis 29, verse 25. Jacob says to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Didn't I serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And he uses the exact same word. There were multiple words for deceit in Hebrew. He used the exact same word that his father used when Esau came in and said, where's my blessing? Esau said, Jacob deceived me. And here's Jacob, right? Do any of you have children that treat each other one way, but as soon as they get treated that way, they're using the same language about their victimhood that they victimized somebody else with and they don't see it? Aren't we supposed to see this in Jacob? Why did you deceive me? Right? The, the, arch de- the deceiver has been deceived. And what is this? This is God's love. God's unconditional love that, is, that, that does not accept us as we are. I said this on Wednesday night. God's love is unconditional, but his acceptance of us is with condition. He refuses to accept the areas of our life that are broken. He has better plans for us than that. So he confronts, he rebukes, 
And he disciplines. He punishes. He judges us. If you have your Bible, look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 6 through 10. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Isn't this Jacob? He sowed deceit and he reaped deceit. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, God punishes Jacob, but it's not an arbitrary punishment. It's not, you did bad, let me reach into my magic bowl and pull out some punishment, right? No, it's the punishment that fits the crime. He re- God, God here, this isn't the angry parent striking out at the child. This is God, the loving parent, allowing Jacob to experience the pain of being on the receiving end of the deceit that he deals out. Here's what it's like to be in the hands of someone who is cunning and deceptive and heartless and greedy and ambitious, Jacob. This is a powerfully formative experience. Suffering, pain, discipline. This is a significant way God works in our life. It says in Hebrews, those of you who know the verse, those whom he loves, he disciplines. This is God's love in Jacob's life. Now Jacob is going to see what it's like to be a deceiver. And the big question is, will Jacob learn? Will he continue to deceive? Parents, do you discipline your children? Punishment done right in the context of love is an act of love. It's a primary way God shapes our character. But not just children. What about you? What about the adults? Remember, Jacob is in his 70s here. And God is still disciplining him. Now this is an amazing thing to me. That with God there's no sense of retirement. We don't enter into decades in our life where, oh, okay, now we just coast. In God's love for Jacob, he's dealing with him. He's saying, even though you've grown up in this, I I still want to deal with this. Is God doing this in your life right now? Is God punishing you, disciplining you, rebuking you? When he does, do you accept it? Or are you more like Laban? When God rebukes you, do you throw it back? When, when God rebukes you through somebody else naming your sin, do you act like Laban and say, oh, no, 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 that's not me. It's really your fault. When God punishes you, do you strike out at the universe? Why me? Do you strike out at God? Or do you receive it? Okay, so God is working in Jacob's life by rebuking him, naming his sin. By letting him reap the fruit of his sin. These are the two negative ways. Now for the positive ways. The third way that God is forming Jacob. Trying to fix him. Trying to help him. Is through service. 
service. The key word in this story, Hebrew, avad, to serve. Some form of this word is used seven times in these 16 verses. If you're familiar with symbolism in the Bible, seven matters in the Bible. You see something show up seven times. It's not an arbitrary seven times. It's a highly crafted technique of the narrator to get across a point. Furthermore, it's not only seven times. It's at the beginning verse and the inverse of the story, right? Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban. It frames the story. It's smattered throughout the story. It's seven times. Seven times this word service comes up. Now, go back to chapter 25, verse 23. Uh, Leah, uh, Jacob's mom is pregnant, Rebecca. And she has twins, and they're fighting in the womb. And it's such a painful pregnancy, uh, she says... <laughs> I can't even live. I'd rather die than keep going through this. And she goes to God. And God says to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Here's what I want you to see. God's call on Jacob's life is to be a leader served by others. That's what God, from his birth, has said Jacob's going to do in life. He's going to lead. And he gives him enormous gifts to lead. But every gift has a shadow side. And the shadow side of Jacob's passion and zeal and energy and his boundless cleverness, the shadow side is, like I've said, unhealthy self-reliance. He's the most rational and resourceful person in the book of Genesis. And the shadow side is that he's so self-reliant, he's self-absorbed. More than anybody, he trusts himself. So Jacob is not yet fit to lead. He's not yet fit to fill the role God has called him to. David was 16 years old one day when he was tending sheep. And a prophet came. And out of all his brothers, he was the littlest, the runt. God put his hand through the prophet on David and said, you're going to be king of Israel. The prophet leaves. His dad looks at him and says, you think that changes anything? Go back and fix and tend the sheep. He was called to kinghood. He was gifted for kinghood. He was anointed for it. But it wasn't until he was 30 that he actually got to do it. God very frequently calls us to something and gives us a pressure cooker of decades before we get to do it so that the pressure of working for a boss that you're better than, the pressure of being at a company that frustrates you, the pressure of of having people over you that are not as qualified as you, shapes you. Moses, 40 years old when God called him to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. But it wasn't until he was 80 that he actually got to do that. 
Do you know what it's like to have a gift and a passion and a desire and a dream that's constantly frustrated? It's formative. That's what it is. It's formative. And it's a key way that God is at work in the life of Jacob. For Jacob to lead in God's way, he must learn to be a servant leader. Because all through the Bible, God's leaders are servant leaders. And so if you can't serve, you can't lead. Not in God's ways. One of the primary ways that God works and forms people is through our work. And particularly by allowing us to work for someone who is worse at our job than we are. And yet we have to report to them. This is a fundamental way God works in our life. David under King Saul. Jacob under Laban. Are you in this type of situation? Is God humbling you? Wives, are you married to a husband that's not as spiritual as you? Teenagers, do you have parents who aren't as smart as you? You parents are laughing as if that cannot be the case. It actually can be the case. How are you responding to rebuke, to punishment, to service that's difficult? Is God humbling you? Is he challenging your pride, your self-reliance? Okay, so God is working in Jacob's life by rebuking him, by letting him reap the fruit of his sin, and by putting him in the role of a servant. The fourth and final way that we see God forming Jacob in this passage is through marriage. Like I've said many times, marriage is a calling. It is not a basic human right. This is most precisely articulated in 1 Corinthians 7 where God tells us that being sexually faithful to your heterosexual spouse or being celibate as a single, both of these are God's gifts, God's callings that require His grace. It requires a grace gift from God to be faithful as a single or faithful in your marriage. But what we need to see here is how God is using marriage to form Jacob. And for this, what it is, is here. For the first time, Jacob cares about somebody. For the first time, Jacob has room in his heart for somebody else. Look at verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seen them but a few days because of the love he had for her. Isn't that romantic? Ladies, would you love a guy that had to work seven years? And he said, oh, it was, it, was, it was like nothing. It was worth every moment of it to marry you. Isn't this wonderful? It reminds me of the end of Song of Songs, the end of Song of Solomon. Um, let me read this beautiful verse to you. Uh, chapter 8. It's hard to find. I always skip right over it. Song of Songs. Chapter 8. Set Verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. 
Can you see how in Jacob's life, romantic love opened the door of his heart? This previously self-centered, self-reliant man suddenly works for seven years. This super deceiver who when his brother said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you my birthright for the stew. Jacob says, no, promise me first, write it down, sign it. This guy who will never be tricked is suddenly naive and trickable. It's because he's starry-eyed in love with Rachel. All of a sudden, the trickster's naive. All of a sudden, the canny one is deceived. As a result of opening his heart up, he becomes vulnerable. And by becoming vulnerable, God can educate him. Jacob, as lover, is open to education because love has made him vulnerable to suffering. It's preparing him to recognize the limits of his own powers of understanding. What makes Jacob the wily trickster vulnerable to deception is eros, romantic love for the beautiful Rachel. For those of you who are married, has your marriage opened your life to suffering? Do you suffer more from your spouse than you do for your spouse? Does your marriage open your life up to reveal all of your selfishness? If so, that is God's work in your life through your marriage. That's God. Do you see a theme here? When it gets hard at work, when it gets hard in marriage, don't run from it. If you do, you're running from God's work. You're running from the way that God wants to shape you. Look, I'm not not talking about if you're you're being abused and that kind of stuff. Look, I'm not talking about that, okay? If that's the case with you, You need to talk to a pastor. You need to talk to a counselor. You need to get in a safe place. But short of that, suck it up. Yield to your friends who are rebuking you. Yield to your circumstances that you actually deserve. The hole you dug for yourself. Yield to your marriage. Yield to your service. Learning through suffering. So there we have it. Four ways that God is at work in Jacob's life. Rebuke, discipline, service, and marriage. Now, let's pull back and remember one thing about the bigger picture as a way of tying all of this up. The way Jacob is, he's been like this since he was born. Right? In the womb, he refused to yield to his twin. And in his birth, do you remember his brother was born first and he was grabbing the heel. He was born with this flaw. And yet he's accountable for it. It doesn't matter if you were born with homoerotic desires. You're accountable for them. And God loves you. And God's going to work on you to get away from that. This is just, it's, I didn't see it until late yesterday that in light of our lectures on Wednesday night, this is it in black and white. It's right there. Here was a man born with inborn traits that were terrible. 
And here is God rebuking them, punishing them, shaping them, forming them, refusing to allow Jacob off the hook because he's always been this way, because he was born this way. But not just homoerotic desires. What about any other issue you were born with that's out of line with God's will? God wants your goodness. He wants you to not be fractured in your relationship with him or with others or with his creation or with yourself. And so in love, God does not accept our weaknesses in the sense of saying, just keep them. I won't worry about them. It's too difficult. No, here God will go through great lengths and allow you to endure great suffering in order to escape death. Because God's ways are life. And every other way is death. What about you? Is there something in you that has been there since birth? Something that God in his love wants you to grow out of? If so, will you repent? Will you repent? Even if you're in your 70s, will you repent? Teenagers, will you repent over this thing you struggle with? That's the grace of God. Here's the good news. The service isn't over. We get to come to this table. When God offers us the bread and the wine, just like he did Judas. He offers all of us a bunch of deceivers. A bunch of jerks. Bad husbands, bad wives, rebellious teenagers. Ornery children. God is going to say to all of us through this table right now, come on, take my body into your body. Take my blood into your, into your body. Let it go all the way down in you and heal you. We have a good God. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Let's pray.